sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, boss? You've lost half your body sleeping. I I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, I'm Brian. And hey, guys, it's Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Rumor, innuendo, stuff, things you've heard about your favorite bands and your favorite artists. We dig into it. And typically, these episodes start with a music-related question. I mean, it is called Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. But today, the story starts with a question that seemingly has nothing to do with rock and roll. You ready for this? I'm ready, and if the answer is sun in, I've already guessed it if we're talking about hair products. Go ahead. Dude, why are you bringing up sun in? Why are you bringing up sun in? Are you trying to make fun of me, man? Do you know my history with sun in? I was a big sun in user in high school. Do you know my history with sun in, Brian? What what did you do do with it? I did it in middle school because I wanted to look like Vince Neil. I wanted to (laughs) look like the lead singer of Motley Crue, and it turned the back of my hair in spots green. From the chlorine, and also sun in smells awful. It like doesn't smell good. Surely they've they've I made mean, the formula better now, right? It's got to be better now. I hope. I mean, I don't know. I'm not going to be running to the store to to blonde <laughs> myself up. It? I'm going to do the blonde ambition tour 2022 for me. I'm going to come home and I'm going to shave off this big white Kenny Rogers beard, and I'm just going to be blonde <laughs> and single. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, so I wore a hemp necklace, a fake hemp necklace. And I'm sure it wasn't actually made of hemp with the beads in it, right? Because like late 90s, guys. And uh, and then spiky hair, and like it needed to be blonder. And so I had some sun in. And I think I still had it in my cabinet when I met my wife uh, when I was in college. And she still makes fun of me for the fact that she found sun in under a cabinet somewhere, which I swore I hadn't used in a long time, but... Oh, who really knows? You know, sometimes you know you're headed out somewhere. You're headed to a barbecue or something. <laughs> you're headed to a barbecue. <laughs> this uh, is not what we are here to talk about. That is not no. the question. Are you ready for this question? The question is I'm simply, for- yeah, Murdoch, do you know uh, why there are motion sensors on the Hollywood sign? Uh, is it? Do I have to have the right answer? No, you, I have you, no, no, no. You don't have to have an answer at all. It's not a rock and roll question, but. It has a, I have a very rock and roll answer. Okay. I'm not going to answer, but I have some good guesses. Okay. I'll, I'll just leave it. Okay. Well, let's start with a primer on the Hollywood sign. Do you have any idea of the dimensions of that bad boy? Big. It's really big. I'm not sure, though. 45 feet high, 350 feet long, put up on Mount Lee in Santa Monica in the year 1923, which, guys, that was 99 years ago, <laughs> which for some reason yeah. when I read 1923, I don't think that was almost 100 years back, but it was. Uh it was, you know, it started as a real estate ad. It actually, yes. yeah, it actually first said Hollywood Land Number Four. Yeah, it, it wasn't about the no, movie I mean, stars. no, it wasn't because that wasn't really a thing. And all the different parts had bulbs on them, and they would flash in order. And That's so it's Hollywood Land, and they put up a searchlight to draw even more attention. And this was all because there was a new housing development called Hollywood Land. <laughs> That's it. That's it. It all started from that. The whole thing cost 20K 100 years ago. So like 320K these days. And if you can imagine, it's up in the hills, tech a little different. The, you know, I mean, think. The, 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 the motorized vehicle had not been around that long. So the story goes that to get the poles needed to put the letters up, they used mules up that wow. hill. Yeah. God, it's crazy. So the plan was to leave it there for a year and a half. 
But this is right about the time that the movies and the bright lights and the camera and the action all start to sort of get connected to that area. So it ends yeah. up staying up and becoming the iconic symbol for L.A. It was there before it was there first. this. I know. Yeah. I know. So over the years, stuff happens to the sign. Like, you can't just leave things out in the wild and not expect them to get destroyed at some point, right? The most infamous old Hollywood story has to do with this actress named Peg Entwistle, who who does become a little bit a part of rock and roll history. There's there's some songs and some references about Peg Entwistle. Do you know anything about this story? 1932? Classic Peg. No, I don't know anything about her. She, she jumps off the H. Oh. Yeah, it becomes old Hollywood lore, sort of a siren song signaling the trappings of glitz and glamour, but she was trying to make it as an actress. She's in one movie, one movie, and um, I, the movie actually comes out after she dies, um, but she left a suicide note. They find her body, like somebody hiking finds her body later, and yeah, they, they put it all together that she had climbed up on the H and jumped off back in 1932. Uh, you think that it would make it go away, you know? Yeah, that they would get rid of it? Yeah, no, they they don't. Uh, Things happen to the physical part of the sign as well. In the 40s, the H gets destroyed. There's two stories about what happens to the H. Story one... What, Nazis? (laughs) (laughs) No, but that would be be a great Hollywood movie about the Hollywood sign. Um, Story one, wind. Story two, the guy who was supposed to be the caretaker of the sign was drunk driving and ran into it. (laughs) Oh my God! That's, you you can I probably guess true. which story the Hollywood sign trust officially endorses, but I like the second one. Uh, I do too. Yeah. Okay, so we're just sort of moving up the timeline. In '49, the Chamber and the Parks Department have a meeting, and they decide to restore the sign. But there are some demands to make this happen, and so first they remove land. So that's how we get just Hollywood. And then the Parks tells the Chamber that if the thing's gonna flash. Because remember, it has light bulbs on it, so it's Hollywood. If it's going to do that, they don't want to pay the electric bill anymore, so they just get rid of it because nobody wants to pay that electric bill. <laughs> so Funny. Yeah, just get rid of it. By the Easy. 70s, it's not looking very good. Uh, the first O starts to look like a lowercase u. You can go and find pictures of this. And the third O falls over. So nestled into the Hollywood Hills is a sign declaring it Hollywood. <laughs> Not a good look. And obviously, Hollywood, by this point, 50 years down the line from when this thing goes up, you know, they're kind of concerned about appearances. But who has the serious clout and influence to get the damn thing restored to the status it deserves? A famous actor. Mm, Close. How about a famous guy wearing a robe? Oh, so it it's the Playboy Mansion? Uh, Hugh Hef. Hugh Hef leads a public campaign. And this is his, his this is his thing. He's like, if I can recruit nine rich people to basically each sponsor a letter, it's going to cost 30k in the early 70s to get one of the one of these things replaced. So I need nine people who will pony up 30k. Everyone's a different person. Hef has to pitch in because it's his idea. It's got to be so much fun this list. He gets the why the H is Terrence Donnelly, the publisher of the Hollywood Independent Newspaper. The, the first L is Les Kelly, the founder of Kelly Blue Book. The, the second L is Gene Autry. Back in the saddle again. All right. The, the W is Andy Williams. Shout to my Uncle Jay, who loves Andy Williams. Second O is Giovanni Mazza, an Italian movie producer. The third O is Warner Brothers Records. And the D is Dennis Lidke, 
who was just a business guy. Now, here's okay. here's what I didn't say. The first O was bought by Alice Cooper. Figures. I was wondering to know if it was going to be him or Mickey Dolenz or Harry Nielsen or which one of those guys. Here's the and weirder it is, it thing about Alice. it. It's not yeah. just that Alice Cooper bought the O. It's that he donated it in memory of Groucho Marx. Oh, that is so cute. <laughs> Whatever that means. <laughs> but as rock and roll as it is that Alice Cooper actually owns part of the Hollywood sign, that is not what we're here to talk about today. That is not the rock and roll rowdiness, the colors, the answer to the question about security measures on Mount Lee. For that, we have to go somewhere else in L.A., somewhere quite a bit seedier. The year's 85, so we're, we're, we're getting into your favorite decade. Yes. Uh, two former episodes of this show to remember as we do this, okay? Episode 45, Richard Beanstalk and Tom Bajor joined us to talk about their book, Ain't Nothing But a Good Time. Remember we talked about the hair metal scene on the Sunset Strip. It's at its height right now in, in 85. But also, if you go back to 55, episode 55, the summer of 85 in L.A., things were like a little scary because remember there was a serial killer who would come to be known that's, as the Night Stalker. That's right. So the seedy underbelly of the City of Angels was on full display at this point. And it's against this backdrop that we slide into a dingy warehouse in the middle of a city that its inhabitants call Soul House. <laughs> Which, you know, if you got to dress up the title of where you live, it says something. Uh, yeah. Three of those inhabitants, John E. Love... Skid Rose and Joey Gold. And those are people's names. Those okay. are people's names. And they had a guy who, like, they were, I, I think the story goes that at some point they're touring as a band and they might have even been, like, in Japan or somewhere, like, far away from home. And their lead singer just, like, quit on them. So they welcome a new guy in. And his name is Jim Wilkinson. And the four try to make it as a band. And they're, they're playing electronica of sorts because it's the early 80s and they're sort of into this new wave thing and they call themselves Data Clan. And they wear glam makeup and they try mostly unsuccessfully to tour in Mexico. But the best thing this band really has going for it is one particular song. And it's a tune they do called Love Slash Hate. And they decide that maybe they should put all their chips in on that. So they rename the band. And they become known as Love Hate. <laughs> and that guy, Jim, they hired to sing, he wants to keep up with the competition. He's like, listen, if we're going to do this on the Sunset Strip and we're going to get noticed among Wasp and Motley Crue and people throwing meat and girls taking clothes off, he's like, guys, we got to have a lead singer with a crazy name. And if I'm going to be your lead singer, my name should not be Jim. Nope. What should it be, Murdoch? Uh, is it Dizzy? Is that no, what it is? No, 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 no. <laughs> Buddy, I haven't been Googling Dizzy for the last two weeks getting this episode what's, ready. What's I've been having name? to Google the name Jizzy, Jizzy Pearl. <laughs> Jizzy Pearl. I don't know why I had the name rhyme with the whole thing. <laughs> this is an actual quote from Jizzy Pearl. Would you rather go see a band with a singer named CeCe DeVille or Jim? So, you know... That's, that was sort of the attitude. I'm going to now become Jizzy Pearl. So it's also around this time that these glamours hear another band play. They get this album by a British band called The Cult. 
and it's Yay. called Love. And suddenly they start dressing a little different and they get a little more goth. And, you know, they're spending this time trying to figure out who the hell they want to be. And you probably remember from this combo back in episode 45 with Tom and Rich about the Sunset Strip, but there were a lot of bands in and around the Strip just desperate to get a record deal around this time. Because it felt like everybody was getting one. This is a quote from Jizzy Pearl. That was a hard time watching everyone else get record deals. It was hard congratulating people. I had to fortify myself with strong drink to be able to smile at Junkyard and LA Guns and Jet Boy. In that time, it was it was like Wonka's golden tickets. You know what I mean? Every time some band got signed, you thought that was one less golden ticket for me. Eh, I mean, sort of. Maybe was how it was, right? Yeah, I guess. The closest these I can't believe we're talking about love hate. This is so fun. Okay. The closest these guys can seem to get to their own golden ticket though are soundtrack placements. And I mean it's 85, but they're not quite getting on like the Back to the Future and Indiana Jones soundtracks. Uh, they land songs on the soundtrack to Critters 2 and yeah, Nightmare on Elm Street. Nightmare yeah. on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master. Yeah, buddy. Yeah. Uh Man, that not the Dream Warriors. No, that's no. docking. <laughs> Things are not going like they want, to be honest. And one day, they're playing a club gig, and someone records it. This is, you know, back before phones. So somebody somebody took some effort and brings the band the tape. And Jizzy sees this tape, and he's embarrassed. Not so much of the band, but he's embarrassed of himself. He's a drunken wreck, and so he tells the band he's ready to clean up and get serious. Meanwhile, Jizzy's the guy with, you know, who who's making a name for himself in the most obvious way possible. But the guy kind of pulling the strings in this band is the bass player. And he goes by the name Skid Rose. Let me enunciate. R-O-S-E. It's, it's so weird. Now, he's been writing songs. And these guys take these new songs and they start playing weekly at the Whiskey A Go-Go. There's this Monday night event in the late 80s at the Whiskey A Go-Go called the No Bozo Jam. There's a great article in the show notes from 1990 explaining the No Bozo Jam. It's in the LA Times. And it's one of the more fascinating things I've read in a long time because it is a time capsule of what was happening on the strip. But here's, here's how the No Bozo Jam worked. As an audience member, you would pay $3 to come in on a Monday night to the whiskey. And that you would watch 15 bands Gosh. play three to four songs each, right? So this was basically like the metal version of an open mic at the Comedy Cellar in, in New York City. Up-and-comers are battling it out. This is how a lot of bands get noticed and, and get going, including Bango Tango and Warrant and recent R&RBS show subject, Kingdom Come. Bang Tango. Oh, my gosh. But sometimes you even get a legend who would just stop in unannounced, right? Like that time Zach Wilde showed up and did 90 minutes without anybody knowing he was going to show up. So this is where Love Hate grinds it out. They just keep showing up Monday night, Monday night, Monday night, getting on these bills. And eventually, Columbia Records takes a chance on them. And all those songs the Skid Rose had written that the guys had been working on and refining live, they now become an album called Blackout in the, in the Red, Red Room. Room.
always sounds constant. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. 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 The other single is super funny. Oh, do you want to talk about the other single? Yeah. The the other single. I, I just want you the, to do your best the, impression of, of before I play it, I want you to do your best impression of the other of the opening of the other single. Why do you think they call it dope? <laughs> That's it. Even, and it did better than that song. I don't even know if I need to play it. That was so no, good, man. You don't. I mean, if you play the part where he's like scatting before it jumps into the chorus. That's what everyone needs to hear, Brian. Oh, man. And then there's there's also a song called Rock Queen on this record. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Let me touch your cookies. Let me touch your cookies. Rock <laughs> Queen. Yeah, it's everything about that, that song <laughs> has not aged at well at all. And those are the words I'm going to remember and say. I'm not going to say the rest oh, of them. Oh, man. You just did all the work on that one. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly it. Uh, Rock Queen is the best song on that record. Dude, and I'm sorry, everyone. I love Blackout in the Red Room. So when I got into writing this, I kept playing Blackout in the Red Room and Why Do You Think They Call It Dope? Like on repeat. And I freaking love these songs like it's ridiculous man but it is so high octane the production is good and it's just totally over the top but it's got hooks that blackout in the red room it's got hooks man it has rocket the that song (laughs) and this clicks man the album comes out in february of 1990 and over the next year it suddenly looks like these dudes who had been so desperate to get their shot in the crowded la scene are actually going to make it. You know who they tour with in their first year? Yeah, they tour with Dio and ACDC. Yeah, and, and uh, you got it. That's it. And these guys are a fun live band. So we should yeah. actually, we should stop down and talk about that for a minute, actually. Do you know enough about their live show to know their trademark thing? No. So they would, And, and I didn't see, I didn't see them... But I saw a bill they were on, and then I didn't catch. Like I saw, uh, Bang Tango, and the Bullet Boys or Pretty Boy Floyd or like there's a couple of them, but I didn't see them. So what's their gimmick? Like what is their? So they're desperate to get noticed, and so they start trying to figure out how to stand out amongst all these other bands they're up against. I mean, think about the No Bozo Jam, right? Fifteen bands a night. Like how do you stake your claim in the mind of the stereo and the wallet of the audience? Right? You have to make some sort of impression. So. The way they do it is actually an accident at first. So, like I said earlier, Jizzy's the face and voice of this band, but the real mastermind, and even Jizzy admits this in interviews, is Skid. Skid plays bass, but he writes the songs, and he's pushing them on stage. And the story goes that at some point, they're getting ready to go on stage at this show, and backstage, Skid is like, I guess they're like in the dressing room or something, and he starts making, taking all these Budweiser cans, and he makes a cross out of them. And then it's time for love hate. And they come running out and he comes out with this cross of Budweiser cans and like dances with it on stage. And this becomes the love hate live show thing for a while. What? That's so crazy. Yeah. What? And as best as I can tell, and I dug around on this quite a bit, there is nothing to this other than random shock value, right? They do it once. It elicits a reaction and they keep doing it. It was nothing more than like this random sort of party trick, but it becomes their thing. And this connection to a cross becomes key to this story. So hang tight. All right. So 
love hate comes off these two big tours that you mentioned. Dio, ACDC. It's 91. They need to start getting the next record together. So they take a batch of songs to Columbia, and Columbia rejects them all. So here they are, fragile moment, building momentum. They need a sophomore record. They got nothing. So Jizzy and Skid, who have always wanted to live in New York, convince the label to let them get a place together in New York City to write and record the new record. This This is a quote from John E. Love, who was in the band with them. He says, New York was an experience to say the least. The whole town is just set up like a playground for the decadence of rock band. Unfortunately, partying did interfere sometimes with getting the album done. (laughs) So they want Dave Jordan to produce this thing. Jane's Addiction, early RHCP, that's who they want to produce. But he was unavailable for some reason. So the label tells them, sorry, dude, you get John Jansen. Jansen was getting a lot of work with metal bands around this time. Britney Fox, Cinderella. But Britney he, Fox. I know, you, I know you love Britney Fox. I put them in just for you. Uh, oh, but yeah. he'd cut his teeth with Hendrix and The Who. And as Johnny Love puts it, quote, mm, he just didn't quite get it. He didn't get what we were about. So long story short, they end up with this record that nobody likes. Like the band or the or the label, really. But while the album is still being finalized, they get an offer, and talk about things getting confusing. They get an offer to support Skid Row in Europe. So Skid Rose is going to play before Skid Row. Yeah. Uh, With Sebastian Bach. Yeah. Uh huh. And Columbia wants to put something out that they can promote while they're out. Yeah. So right. against the band's wishes they release a song that the members had actually rejected from the second album. It's called Evil Twin. Now, while on this tour, Skid starts, Skid Rose starts talking to the press and openly saying how much he doesn't like Columbia Records. Oh, well, that'll work. This is from the Johnny Love interview. Skid was furious that Columbia wanted us to conform to a more radio-friendly format, and he started letting journalists know that's kind of a bad thing to do when your label has put an excessive amount of money into the band and we were not doing platinum figures. So at some point on this tour too, this is a side note, but it, it has to be mentioned. Jizzy gets in a fight with Sebastian Bach and the band gets thrown off the tour. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's by the way, is not an unusual thing to happen <laughs> with bass. So it's all chaos. They end up, I guess they end up making up and coming back. Like they're not off the tour, really. Like they miss a show or actually, I'm not even sure they miss a show. But there is, I mean, this is just sort of the the chaos of the environment. That gets finished. They get back to town and they find out that Columbia is ready to drop them because none of the new singles are working. So what happens next and what we're really here to talk about I'm going to first say is very much ahead of its time, at least in motivation and concept. I know that sounds weird, but let's talk about marketing for a second. And let's talk about marketing right now in 2022. If you or I have a project of any sort, Murdoch, and it's flagging now in 2022, you or me as a creator or performer in any avenue of the arts, podcasting, watercolors, finger painting, whatever, most likely we're going to look for an opportunity to create noise, right? You're looking for a way to do it that seems authentic, 
but that raises eyebrows and gets people talking. And you don't use overlords like record labels or production companies or PR firms, if you can keep from it, because the audience can sniff that out, right? If it's fake, people will be like, oh, that's not real. You have to create a scene that seems real and it's very hard to do. But in 1992, pre-internet, this wasn't a thing. If you were going to make noise about your band or your finger painting, you had to rely on the structures above you to help, to promote you and propel you in your image through traditional means like media placements and billboards and bus stops and big budgets. Playing on on top of Tower Records. Right. And when they tell you that they won't help you anymore, which is what happens to Skid Rose and his friends in (laughs) Love-Hate, there aren't a lot of options. So it's notable that Love-Hate decide they are not going down without a fight. If the record label won't promote them, they'll promote themselves. And they take matters into their own hands. Oh, this is really fascinating. Okay. And they haven't been dropped, or they're being dropped. Yes, the writing's on the wall. I I don't know that at this point they're entirely off the label yet, but they know it's coming. So Jizzy says, the germ of this idea comes from back in the day when the band was dirt poor. And if you listen to interviews with these guys, they'll talk about this, that they all lived together pretty much for the entirety of the band. Or at least at the beginning and then in the middle when they created that second record. So they were, that was sort of, they wanted to get back and capture that magic, go to New York and all live in the same place again. So back in the early days when they were all living in that soul house place in LA, which was just a crappy one room apartment, I think. Um, Actually, you know what? I saw an interview with Jizzy. <laughs> I forgot about this. Where he said where they actually were living was a budget rent-a-car lot that had been closed down. And they somehow got rental on the building. And so it was like, you know those square buildings with like one yeah. hallway? So yeah, yeah. they the offices were the bedrooms. And then the middle part where would like the uh, secretary would have been if you came in to rent a car, that was where they set up the the band equipment so they were like literally trying to start the band in an old budget rent a car building uh it's amazing so back in those days they were dirt poor they're trying to make it and sometimes jizzy would find himself caught in traffic in the hollywood hills and he would look up at that hollywood sign while sitting in traffic and he would think what's it gonna take to make it in this town like a blood sacrifice or something so when this moment in 1992 comes around, Skid is playing around with making movies and takes that old germ of the idea of sacrificing someone on the Hollywood sign and comes up. And, and, and what, what do we already know Skid knows how to do? He knows how to make uh, a cross. Make a cross with Budweiser things. Budweiser so, cans. Yeah, he decides to use heavier materials for this. He builds a 20, almost 30-foot high cross. And they decide they're going to stage a crucifixion on the Hollywood sign. If you want to go to the show notes, there's a sit down with Jizzy on Metal Sludge from last year. So it's pretty recent. Okay. It's it's a great show called Waste Some Time with Jason Green. Web show. This guy interviews everybody from that era. And he talks about this whole process of figuring out how they were going to do this. Including testing it over a two-story building in downtown L.A during which Skid attempts to climb down onto the cross from the top of the building onto the cross that they've hung over it with a rope and ends up falling straight down the building onto his butt. Uh, 
Uh, so they end up going and buying a chain ladder and figuring out how it will work. So they test it again <laughs> on the side of a building. And then they go up in the dead of night and they put this cross together and they hide it behind the letter H. Oh my God, this is amazing. Okay. And, and then the next day at 2 p.m., they rig a pulley system and they haul that cross on ropes and lay it flush against the letter Y. And then they realize something. The chain ladder isn't going to go through the Y correctly. Because if you think about it, the Y has a point, right? And so if you go through that, you can't, it won't sit like it would at the top of the H. It's going to sort yeah. of fold in on itself. So it gets all tangled up, and Jizzy's on it. And when he starts to try to crawl down, it unfurls, and he starts swinging around and screaming 50 feet up in the air. They finally get it all worked out, and he gets and climbs up on this cross. This is a hard thing to visualize. I can't believe this is a thing that I've never heard of, and it's weird. Okay. They, they all think this is going to be like a half-hour event. Because in their minds, what's going to happen is they're going to be exposed for everybody to see. Cops are going to see it. They're going to freak out. And he's going to be down and out of there in like 20, 30 minutes tops. But the problem is no one really notices or cares. (laughs) And he's so far up this thing that he can't, from where he got, he got down onto it. He can't get back off of it. He hits the two-hour market. And he starts to get tired and scared. And then, from around the trees, through the Hollywood Hills, comes a news chopper. We have a breaking news story now on the Hollywood sign on the letter Y, to be specific. A man has put a cross on that letter and put himself on the cross. Captain Ron, what else can you tell us? Well, Paul, this is uh, quite unusual out here. It's drawn quite a bit of attention from the other helicopters out here in the Los Angeles area. As you can see, he's right in the middle of the Y, and we've got a cross out here that's decorated with some some uh, flowers and it uh, looks like some uh, other type of multicolored material out here. Now, he's standing on a platform wearing some uh, leather boots, it appears like, and he's got his arms semi-extended on the arms of the uh, cross itself. Now, it looked like he'd have to have some help to get up here. We looked around the area out here and couldn't find anyone else, and we're unsure how he got up there. Now, that's pretty much the scene here at the Hollywood sign. Paul, back to you. Can you tell if there's some sort of lettering around his <laughs> waist? The ZO I see on the right there, uh, Ron. I don't know if you can make it out any better than we can. The cameraman might be able to tell yeah. us what that says. Uh, well, Rizzo? Rizzo? It, it looks like that's uh, just about what you can see, and that's about all I can uh, make out from here. <laughs> so if you okay, go uh, into the show notes, you can pull up this uh, this video. And on this video, what they have done is taken all of the reports. It's about six minutes long in total. They've taken the series of cut-ins. So over this period of, a, of an hour or something, when they cut back to Eyewitness 7 News for updates. And they get more and more irritated as they start to realize that this is not... A, so at first, they're like, what is going on? And then they're like, oh, maybe it's a protest. And then they start to figure out that it's a stunt and that it involves a rock band, and they have no tolerance for it. Yeah, because who has tolerance <laughs> for this in Los Angeles? You got news to cover. When it bleeds, it leads. This is boring. And, and so it starts with this optimism that you just heard of like, oh, there's something happening at the Hollywood side. And at the end, they have a guy doing a live shot from like one of the hills and he's just 
disgusted. He's just disgusted by the whole thing. Um, it's amazing. They end up using a hook and ladder on a fire truck to get him down. <laughs> They're trying to get him to say, like, what are you what are you doing up there? And he's like, I'm an artist and my art speaks for itself. Uh, they take him to jail. Yeah. He does end up with community service. He says he has to paint over graffiti. And not there, but just somewhere in L.A. And to get to the very beginning of where we started, after this, motion sensors and security measures are installed all around the Hollywood side. Oh, my gosh. It's because of Jizzy Reed? I thought it was going to be like, because people have sex or drugs. Jizzy Jizzy Pearl Pearl is the reason. Yeah. Why do I say Jizzy Reed? Like it's some other person. Uh, um, I can't believe the lead singer of Love Hate is the reason that. I mean, that should be. That should be. <laughs> should that should be, be part of the tour. Fact. That should be part of the tour. Uh, so here's the question: Did it sell records? Um, did it save Love Hate? And I, I think you probably know. No, it didn't really. Uh, the labels, but Jizzy, Jizzy did tour. Oh, 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 yeah, yeah. Jizzy's Love Hate. <laughs> So Jizzy has an okay career, actually. So here's what happens. The label's pissed. They don't get this stunt, right? This is 1992, not 2022. So this idea of of a viral stunt that gets you a bunch of free attention does not translate. Jizzy points out in an interview that when you're making money for the label, they'll defend you. But when you're not and you're about to get dropped, you do not get any help. Uh, They actually, after this, they get offered a support slot with Black Sabbath and the label won't let them do it. Oh, my gosh. Columbia even cancels the marketing campaign that they were about to do around the single Miss America. They formally drop them, and then Johnny Love quits. And Johnny Love reveals in an interview that you can find in the show notes that he was quasi-suicidal at this point, and things were really, really bad. And this isn't the total end of love-hate, but things definitely go downhill. Legend is Skid sells his car to finance the uh, the third album. Skid is the man. Skid Rose. Love you. Uh... They have trouble getting much support from any label since grunge is the hot thing everybody wants to sign at this point. And then they sort of implode. There's records, there's reunions, as you pointed out, Jizzy tours with a Jizzy Jizzy Pearls Love Hate lineup sometimes. He was he was in rat for a minute too. Oh, he does all right. He eventually steps in to sing for not not just one, several other major bands from the era they originally emerged from. He sings for Rat, he sings for Quiet Riot, he sings for LA Guns, and he's in Adler's Appetite, Stephen Adler's band for a hot minute. Yeah, I forgot about the LA Guns thing cuz he fits in it really well. He's got great pipes. Uh, so what about the Hollywood side? Now, now it has a security system. So has anything dramatic happened in the last 30 years? And the answer is not a whole lot. Uh, not only is there security, they've made it harder to get to. I read this whole thing where the city had to actually go to Google and Apple and ask them to not show the actual direct route to the sign because there is a direct route to the sign that goes through a neighborhood. <clears throat> like you can get really close to it off of this one neighborhood. But they basically have asked the tech giants to like not reveal that. And instead, if you put it in your map, it's going to send you to like this this viewing site off on another hill where you're not actually close to it. But you can go downtown and you can have someone give you a map that shows you where all the famous people's houses are. Yeah. You can drive up to Yeah, them. I'm thinking there's probably only so much they can keep people away from it. But LAist, which is a website about LA, has an article chronicling 
pranks on the sign from throughout its history. Strangely absent is this one about Jizzy, but as you might know, the first one on record is when a Cal State student used sheets to make it say Hollyweed in 1976. 76? Wow. State law had just decriminalized marijuana. Um, much after 92, 93, when this all happens with Jizzy Pearl and the boys, there's not a lot of, of hijinks because of this new security. But in 2010, Kesha claims on Twitter that she messed with the Hollywood sign and she posts a video showing the sign being changed to say Kesha would. Um, the video is quickly debunked as being false. Yes. But in 2017, 41 years after the day that the sign was first pranked and turned into Hollyweed, someone did it again. And so that has happened, and I'm unclear on exactly how that happened. But uh, for the most part, while there's occasional things, and they do occasionally change the sign, like sometimes there's actually officially sanctioned things. They've done this somewhat recently. I think they actually just did it after the Super Bowl. They changed the sign for a couple of days. So that gets done. But this chaos of crucifying yourself on the sign doesn't really happen anymore. That that wow. that, that, that left with uh, with Jizzy Pearl and the boys. Let me tell you, I'm really excited that hopefully for next week's episode, I will not have to just carefully Google the word Jizzy over and over. <laughs> oh, I see. Sorry. I just now got it. I mean, I'm, I'm such a total naive person. Uh, I do want to say to everybody listening, if love-hate is uh, an interesting or new thing, or if it even isn't interesting, if it's just a new thing, check in the show notes and listen to the, the tunes because band was really good. Dude, I en- highly enjoy the first record. Highly enjoy Blackout in the Red Room. Oh, yeah. Same here, dude. I listen to it all the time. On cassette is when I had it. So. <laughs> I was a big fan big fan of Love Hate, so this was awesome. Uh, if you've got a, a band you're a big fan of and you think maybe a little research needs to be done or maybe you have a question, something you've always heard about and you want us to uh, check it out for you, uh, where should they send the email, Murdoch? Uh, these, we are the story guys at gmail.com. And until next time, what should we all keep doing? Keep telling stories. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.